0: Hey guys and gals, welcome back to another episode of the Man Talks podcast. I'm Roger Nairn. My co-host Connor Beaton is down in LA right now, kicking off another Man Talks event in our community, uh, spreading some more love across America. He's kind of like the uh, Johnny Appleseed of Man Talks, Um, but he's going to be back soon on, on the very next episode. It's a really busy time for Man Talks, which we're truly, truly grateful for. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. We talk about purpose, legacy, influence, love, success, sex, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review, subscribe, and join the thousands of other changemakers in our community on Facebook or go to mantalks.com. So before we get started today, uh, there's been so much exciting things going on in the Mantox world, and, and as I said, Connor is traveling uh, to all these different cities. We thought we'd try something new, and 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 we're going to do a little bit of an installment of what we like to call uh, Connor's Tales from the Road. So take it away, Connor.
1: What is going on, Mantox Tribe? I hope that you're having a great week, and I wanted to uh, take a second to connect with all of you since I've been on the road, and Roger has been... Holding the fort down with the Man Talks podcast, but I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about a few lessons that I've learned from the road. Just, just to add a little bit of value, um, you know, it, as we expand and we grow, um, you know, we launch the events in these other cities around the world. I've had the chance to meet some absolutely exceptional men and women who are doing incredible work. In so many different fields, from running you know multimillion dollar companies to people that are game changers like Jonathan Fields, who runs the Good Life project so I wanted to sh- take away and, and just share three things with you today. one is a concept the the second is a question that I have been confronted with and, and starting to live by and and the third, which is really fun and ties into this podcast around anger, is how to deal or how to handle haters. Um, So we had this happen a little while ago. And so I'm going to get to that. But first, I want to talk about something that I, I wrote down the other day, which was hustle hard, play hard, dream big, and act consistent. And that's been a piece. the last piece has been one of the biggest struggles for me personally, is the consistency. And I know a lot of people out there listening are probably nodding their head, and usually when I, I speak at conferences, I talk about you know the power of consistency, not not routine, because the routine's a little bit different, but consistency from the fact of being able to show up each and every single day with your message, with what you're working towards, and taking action on it. Every single day, and so some of us have the hustle part down. Some of us have the play part down pretty good. You know, some of us have huge dreams. Um, but what I've really found in connecting with all of these men and women as I travel across, uh, you know, I was recently in Miami and met an incredible woman who uh, is basically the one of one of the news anchors for CBS Miami. And you know, I, I asked what's been the biggest piece of your success. What's really, you know, helped your career and allowed you to interview and connect with some of the most prominent men and women in business and interview them, you know, over this period of your lifetime. And and she basically said, well, you know, I always had this dream of being a, a news reporter and I always had this vision that I would do exceptional things. And she said, what I really saw was if I was consistent every single day, and went out there and just talked to people and asked questions, I honed my craft and it really narrowed down my skills and my ability. And it it chiseled away from just being raw talent into a gift where I could ask very specific questions and get the best out of people. And I thought, you know, that's really interesting because with the guys and and the women that I've seen that have The success. When I think about Lewis Howes and Dan Millman, and um, you know Mark Manson, who we just interviewed on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Um, If you haven't listened to that podcast, you definitely should. It's exceptional. But all of these people that we've interviewed and that I've had the chance to speak with and work with, they all have the same thing. They all have a vision which is really big, which is great. And you know, they all know how to have fun, and they and they all know how to hustle. And you know, the hustle piece is also really important. Putting the processes in place. Uh, you know, doing the Tim Ferriss thing and, and finding somebody to support you, whether it's a, whether it's an, a virtual assistant or whether it's, a, you know, growing your team and, and making sure that you can financially afford it, but actually being able to bring people in to support you and fill some of those gaps. But Lewis House has said the same thing in a, in a conversation in an interview the other day. He was talking about how he grew the School of Greatness. And how he's, you know, got to big following now. And and the biggest piece that he talks about is consistency. Every single week, day in, day out, you know, being able to provide content and value and insights to people no matter what. And I think that this is one of the differentiating factors. What I've seen is it's one of the major differentiating factors between people who do okay or they do good in their career or they do good in their business and the people who do exceptional in their business and who are just rock stars and leaders like Gary Vaynerchuk they're the people that day in and day out are creating the content they're living their message they're showing up every single day it's there's you know consistency doesn't get to take a day off it's just not how it works so i wanted to leave that piece with you moving forward I've done a lot of reflection over this uh, journey and I got to go to San Francisco um, and support some of my friends there who were leading a a relationship event and I had some time to write and think and then I went to Los Angeles uh, for Man Talks LA and I had some time to go for a big hike up in Topanga And, and while hiking I was talking with somebody and we were having a conversation in and around ego. And, you know, what the ego does is basically makes everything about you. And it makes it so that you get blocked from actually really being of service to other people because we're listening, in our listening, we're coming from a space of how can I relate this to me? How can I, you know, even even if you're like, how can I add value right now? I want to, you know, we hear that a lot. I just want to add value or I just want to have an impact. We hear it all the time. But the problem with that is, is that, How are you supposed to know what value or impact to add in if you're listening from a space of getting your two cents in, if you're listening from a space of just wanting to jump in and and give your advice? And one of the things that I've seen time and time again is the attentiveness. When you stand in front of somebody like Gary Vaynerchuk or Philip McKernan, who we've had on this podcast, or Lewis Howes, they are so... Focused in on you, and so I've started asking a question which has fundamentally shifted everything for me. And that question is: What if it's not about me? What would I do differently if this wasn't about me at all? And I've brought that into interviews. I've brought that into conversations. And you know, when I when I know I'm going to go on to an interview, or I know I'm going to talk to a, a potential sponsor for Man Talks, or whatever the case may be. I come from this space of, what if this isn't about me specifically? And it opens up a completely different conversation where you get to really sit with the other person on the other side of of the phone or the other side of the table and have a dialogue with them that is so removed from you and your ego and what you need to get or what you think you need to give. I, it takes all that away, and all of a sudden you get to be much more present into the space of listening to the other person from from the from the awareness of what if this isn't about me and what if this is about them and you start hearing and seeing opportunities to actually add real value where it's not from the space of this is what I think I should give or this is what I want to give or anything like that. It just becomes so transparent. It just becomes so apparent that you start to see and hear this is what this other person actually needs. This is what this other person is actually looking for. This is how I can actually serve because that's what so many people actually want is to serve. So I wanted to leave that question with you because it's had a huge impact on me. Lastly, I wanted to talk about handling haters. You know, This is going to happen. Haters are going come up. You're going to have people in in your life, in your business, in your career, no matter what the case may be, you're going to have people that come out of the woodworks and just say like the craziest shit. Sometimes it's so off base that you know that it's bullshit, and other times they'll say things that maybe hit a little bit closer to home. And it's usually those pieces that we get to ask ourselves you know, what about this is, is really pissing me off? And so I had somebody the other day that reached out and, you know, I didn't even know who this person was uh, at all. I didn't, I didn't know who they were. Uh, I didn't know their background. I didn't know if I'd ever really even met them, but they reached out and wrote me a pretty nasty message telling me that I was a fake and um, basically calling me a piece of shit, Which is always which is always interesting. And I sat with it for a while and most of the comments, the majority of the comments didn't land at all. But there were some comments in, in, the, in, the, in the message from this person that talked about my past and that talked about me being uh, a cheater and being unfaithful. And, you know, being, bringing infidelity into my past relationships. And that really hit home because that was something that I really struggled with in the past. I struggled with, you know, sex and I struggled with being faithful in relationships. And that's something that I've talked about um, openly a little bit here and there. But the, the thing was, is that most of the comments that, she, that, that this person said was, you know, I wasn't really a big deal. It kind of like all washed away. But when it came to this one piece um, in and around, you know, once a cheater, always a cheater, I, I, you know, that really triggered me. I found myself being really pissed off. Like I was mad. And I started writing back this really big message, um, which was pretty scathing. And it had a few F-bombs. And it was, it was a complete, um, how do you want to say this? assassination of this person's character. I was ready to just tear into them. And I found myself sitting there after writing this, you know, long paragraph that was totally fueled with anger and, and you know, obviously pain. And, and I sat back and I looked at what I, what I had written and I just asked myself, why am I so triggered by this person's comments? Is it because it lands with me? and the answer was yes you know it, anybody who's struggled with addiction anybody who's who's failed who's fucked up who's fallen down and and really struggled with something in their life whether it's drugs or alcohol or you know infidelity or money or depression you know that that part like we we carry that with us for such a long time And one of the most sort of detrimental or sort of triggering things that that can happen to us is when people point that out again. And, you know, our responsibility and our job is not to just like let it go because that's not the the case, right? A lot of people want to just avoid and so they'll just avoid and and block and, you know, block that person or whatever the case may be uh, and just completely avoid altogether. And what I found was in that, Situation, or will react like like I had kind of uh, set up. Will react from a, a space of hurt and anger and pain. And I found myself sitting there, thinking and feeling into it, and asking myself the question from before: What if this wasn't about me? What if this wasn't about me? Why is this person reaching out in this manner and being so? Um, demeaning and disrespectful to me when I don't even know who this person is. They're just being aggressive based off of the business that I run and, and the, the mission that I have in life to serve men, which seemed to really, uh, you know, trigger this individual. And so I thought to myself, what if this wasn't about me? What if, what if in this moment, this aggression that's being you know thrown at me isn't actually about me. And that gave me a very different lens to look through And so it it allowed me to sit with it and respond from a place of not being triggered, from not being upset, and from actually being able to say, hey, you know, it sucks that you feel that way. And, you know, unfortunately, not everybody gets to, you know, live up to everybody else's expectations. And not everybody's going to enjoy the work that I do or think that there's merit in it. And be able to say, you know maybe the maybe the hurt and the anger and the aggression that you're throwing towards me isn't about me and i'm sorry if somebody's hurt you in the past and it was incredible to see the response that came out of that because it was very different and it changed the conversation from it being about me to it being about the pain that this person had experienced in the past so I wanted to leave that with you and and leave that question with you again what if it wasn't about me and what if this person's you know hate and frustration and anger and all that other kind of stuff is coming from them and you know there's a space to to create where you can reach out to them and you can come back with compassion and empathy and you know there's also a time and a place to draw the line and say this person is you know just sort of there's internet trolls, right? There's all those trolls out there. They're just they're just laying in wait with the freaking like Cheeto crumbs all over their chest and the two liter jug of freaking Coca-Cola sitting beside them and all that they do is is basically play World of Warcraft and troll the internet all day long. But there are those people out there that do that, and there are those people out there who see something that you've created or hear something that you've said, and they latch on to it because it's triggered something in them. It's, It's hit a place in them of pain and hurt from their past, from who they think they are, and something within them that's not resolved. And so in that moment of reactivity or wanting to turn away, just remember that hurt only hurt people hurt people. And so if they're trying to reach out and lash out at you and hurt you, it's because they're hurting. And that usually gives you a mind frame of, of that you can support them. So I wanted to leave that with you. And take that away. I'm going to be on the road for the next week and I will be checking in with you again soon. We are launching soon in Ottawa and what, which will probably be early November. And we are launching in Calgary uh, in the end of October. And we are working on launching in Chicago and Denver and Atlanta all by the end of the year. So stay tuned. If you have people in those areas, please send them the Man Talks page or the website. Um, the best thing to do is to go on the Facebook page and invite them in, and they can follow that there, or they can check out the podcast, because we will be announcing all that on here. So I hope that you're having a great day, and I will be back on the air with Mr. Roger Nairn very, very soon. And if you heard any background noise, it's literally because I'm on the road, and um, it's been an absolute blast. So... I will talk to you all soon, Mantox Trab.
0: So, you know, it's so exciting. We're live in Vancouver, Los Angeles, Toronto, Miami, and soon to be live in Atlanta, Chicago, Denver. We're spreading so far away. If you yourself are looking to start up your own Mantox chapter in your city, you can reach out to us at infomantox.ca. We'd be happy to provide you with all the information you would need to do so. When President Barack Obama was about to walk on stage to sign into law the bill that would end the discriminatory policy known as don't ask, don't tell, he went right up to our guest today and said, wow, even I didn't get kicked in the teeth on this one as much as you did. And I'm always the guy who gets kicked in the teeth in tough legislative fights. Today's guest is Joe Salmanes, who's written the book, The Gift of Anger, Use Passion to Build, Not Destroy. Under Joe Solmanese's leadership, the Human Rights Campaign, the largest LGBT civil rights organization in the United States, became the model other organizations looked towards to create effective social and political change. Against all odds, HRC was instrumental in passing landmark national legislation, such as the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and passing Marriage Equality Acts in eight states. How did Joe Solmanese and HRC do this? What Salmanis reveals in his book is that for him, the key to success was learning to harness this anger. Essentially, it's just another form of energy. Channeled, it can keep you moving forward in a long journey, but uncontrolled, it can blow everything up. And what he reveals in the interview today is absolutely incredible. We had uh, an incredible conversation, very lucky to get a chance to have met him. So without further ado, Mr. Joe Salmanis. Yes. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the Man Talks podcast. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. Like we always do, we always like to ask our guests if they could share with us a defining moment for them as a man.
2: Wow. Well, you know, as a man and and as a man who is in his early 50s, I would say probably one of the most defining moments for me was uh, the realization that I was gay in in my early 20s, uh, the process of coming out and doing all of that Right as the AIDS epidemic was hitting my community, and so the, the confluence of all those things happening at once and being the age that I was in the, the time that it was was it was transformative and it was defining to say the least.
0: And I can imagine it must mean incredibly scary to to come out, but also it, it took a lot of courage and a lot of um, looking within and, and just truly being comfortable in your own skin to the, you know to, to be able to come out at that at that point.
2: It did and, and, and I you know, I think it, it did then and it, it still does now, take a great deal of courage to to come out. I think we, we live in a much more accepting, diverse world, and so you know, I, I hear about people, you know, coming out and being out in, in high school and I, I think that's a great thing, but um, you know, no matter where you are, what your circumstances, it, it takes a great deal of courage to come out and as you said, back you know, in in the mid 80s, you know, the added stigma that the AIDS epidemic was, uh, you know, placing on gay men in this country and all over the world, it, it made it that much more challenging to come out and to be out. And it made it that much more difficult at a time when none of us really knew the answers to, you know, so, sort of, what it was that was putting us at such great risk?
0: Right. And for those that don't know, Joe and and Joe's past, uh, he was the leader of the Human Rights Campaign, which is the largest LGBT civil rights organization in the United States. And and I'm and I have to ask, what was it in your past that you know uh, led to you fighting for these causes and having the strength to? Stand up for what you believe in. Was that something that you think there was a, a sort of seminal moment in your past, or were you taught this growing up? And, and we're going to get into the book in a in a second because I think it it leads perfectly into into that uh, that topic.
2: Yeah, it, it does, and it's it's funny. I talk about this in the book. I mean, honestly, you know, my, my father died when I was young. My mother was an extraordinary person who raised us with all the right values and priorities. But I think. The sort of the call to activism for me was really something that I fell into in college. I was in college in Boston in the eighties. I had the opportunity to get an internship in the governor's office. I was a journalism major, uh, but you know the, the governor's office was ab- about the best that I could get. And working in that environment for you know at the time, Mike Dukakis, who was running for re-election as governor, and then you know and then and then running for president in nineteen eighty-eight. You know, I, I just sort of like I, I got the, you know, I sort of caught the bug and got the excitement around working in electoral politics. And I thought it was interesting and action packed and always changing. And and so I, you know, I, I really I worked in politics and I worked in electoral politics for quite a few years. And, and in doing that and in working for progressive candidates, I was exposed to the um, sort of the opportunity that politicians have to really help marginalized and disenfranchise people. And quite frankly, uh, was able to see situations where either, you know, by, by, by virtue of sort of cowardice or lack of will, they didn't do it. And so for me, I think, you know, working in politics and, and working for elected officials and people in public service gave me the opportunity to see the power that existed in being able to help people who genuinely needed it in this country. Um, and that led me to work at EMILY's List, where I worked for 13 years, helping women uh, run for and get elected to high office. Although even there, you know, the, the work of electing women to office and making Congress more representative of America was, was still about helping marginalized and disenfranchised people what I saw at Emily's list was that it was a very powerful place and we had the opportunity to use power in ways to affect real change. And so, you know, as a gay man, a, a bit further along in my career uh, and, and as a member of the human rights campaign, I, I felt like the LGBT community had the potential to be powerful and had the potential to really harness a great deal of change for itself. But just wasn't doing it, and, and I wasn't sure why. But uh, when the job became available in two thousand five, I you know had worked alongside people at at HRC for years. I was a member. I threw my hat into the ring, and I got it.
0: Very cool, and, and it makes sense that you've you know that you've gotten to the point where you've written this book. Uh, the book is called "The Gift of Anger: Use Passion to Build, Not Destroy." Now I have to ask off the top, you know there's this word anger in there and and, I, and it stops you in your tracks when you first see it because anger is seen as you know, a very negative thing and, and we're not supposed to be angry and whatnot. But what I'm hearing from you is passion. You have passion and you have um, a, a belief in fighting for a cause. I'm wondering if you can describe the book uh, to the listeners and perhaps give a bit of a profile of the type of person that this book is is perfect for. And then am I right or wrong in, in that we are talking about you know, uh, fighting for what you believe in, and and just doing it, and harnessing it in a different way.
2: Sure. So so the book really came out of a um, a speech that I was giving an awful lot to college students, pr- primarily college seniors or young people entering the work world, and and the talk that I you know would routinely give was a series of stories, you know, situations that I found myself in, uh, you know, with interesting people. Making social change, whether it was in electoral politics or at Emily's List, or, or most notably at the human rights campaign, in some of the big, you know, fights that we found ourselves with passing the hate crimes bill, repealing don't ask, don't tell, fighting for marriage in certain states. And so, in each of these situations, I had the opportunity to learn what I thought were some pretty important lessons. And so, the speech that I would give was one that involved telling these stories, sharing the lesson that I learned, and then trying to impart it in a way to young people or people who were on a professional track or people who were, you know, seeking to have sort of more substantive relationships, either personally or professionally, uh, you know, and imparting in a way that they may be able to use these lessons in their everyday lives. And that speech grew into this book, and I worked on it for about a year. And as I began to share the stories and the lessons with different people, with my publisher and my agent and, and different friends who I just had, you know, reading it, they all sort of came back to me with the same reaction, especially people who were not, you know, within the LGBT movement. And they said, wow, you know, there's an awful lot of anger here. There's, there, there is justifiable anger that we are feeling as people reading this book about the stories you're telling, you know, either what it is that you came up against, the resistance to the social change you were trying to make, there seems to be anger from your own community about the fact that you're not making change faster and it would seem like you and the people you worked alongside would have a great deal of anger just you know sort of working in this space. So for instance, you know working alongside Judy Shepard to try to pass the Matthew Shepard hate crimes bill named after her son who as I'm sure you remember was killed in a brutal hate crime in Laramie, Wyoming. And you know, meeting with members of Congress and meeting with elected officials and hearing the the excuses and the responses that they would give us for their opposition to supporting such a fundamentally basic and important piece of legislation. And, you know, answers and responses that were just cowardly and, and uninformed and misguided that, you know, made me really angry. And yet I had the opportunity to be standing alongside Judy Shepard, who never seemed to allow the anger to overtake her, never seemed to be thrown off track by her emotions, but just kept coming back with the answers, kept coming back with the responses that they needed to hear, kept her eye on the prize and never lost sight of our ultimate goal, which was to pass that legislation. And so I kind of had the opportunity to learn from people and learn from the situations that, you know, my job, was this moral obligation to pass this legislation for people and to not let my anger or any of my other emotions cloud my judgment or sort of get me off track from what I was supposed to do. And so the book is a series of stories about that, about, you know, things that we come up against that understandably would make us angry, but a a sort of an intentional process to go through to Check that anger, determine whether the anger is justified, determine to what degree you reflect that anger back, and then how you move beyond it and take the necessary steps you need to take to essentially get what you want.
0: And, and did you have a time in your life where anger was proving to be a detrimental thing in your life? And and, and did you learn a lesson from that and, and do a bit of a course correction? And and that led you into starting to practice some of the things that you teach in the book?
2: You know, for me, interestingly enough, I think earlier in my life and in my personal relationships, I'm someone, and, and this is something else I talk about in the book, you know, the. the the prevalence of angry in our anger in our country and our society right now, I think, is is based on a lot of things. One is that I think we we sometimes tend to express anger in replacement for other emotions. So I'm somebody in a personal relationship when if someone did something to hurt me or hurt my feelings or or, or make me sad, uh, you know, and and I think this is actually something you know interestingly enough um, for this conversation that is probably more prevalent in men, right, I, I would manifest that back out as anger. So I would, uh, if someone hurt me or hurt my feelings or disappointed me or made me sad, my reaction would be an angry one. You know, I, I would express anger at them and, and the words that I said and the sentiment that I would express would be one that would be based in anger. And I think it was, you know, it was a defense mechanism. It was a way not to feel vulnerable, not to show that I was sad or or disappointed, but to, you know, sort of raise myself up and make me feel more empowered because the response that I was giving back was an angry one. And, you know, in a personal relationship, right, that then doesn't convey any sort of true response or true feelings to the person who you've been, who's disappointed you. But so, so that's where for me, you know, I, I think in my personal life I was expressing anger more so than I should have been. Um in my work, you know, I was fortunate really, I think early on to be with some people like, you know, whether it was some of the early elected officials I worked for or mentors in my career. And then at HRC, whether it was Judy Shepard or, you know, even the president, you know, I had the opportunity to work alongside President Obama in repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I was able to very clearly see examples of where they encountered something that ought to have made them very angry and where you might expect that they would react uh, angrily and they didn't. And if you sort of followed what they were doing all the way through to its logical conclusion, you were able to see that uh, it was a response that ended up getting them, and oftentimes getting me, what it is that we wanted.
0: Right. I, I can't even. You brought up uh, President Obama. I can't even imagine the number of times that he's wanted to flat out just snap, considering the amount of frustrating. Uh, uh, scenarios that he's got to go through. I mean, just thinking of the latest, you know, gun, gun legislation that he's trying to, trying to pass and just, you can tell that it's, it's a very emotional and incredibly frustrating moment for him. He must have, he must have read your book.
2: Yeah. Well, (laughs) he's, he's a lot of the inspiration for the book. And I think that he's a guy and look, he, there are people who, um, I think would say he he takes some justifiable criticism for this, but he's a guy who looks at what needs to be done and does it. And he's very methodical and very intentional about it. And I worked most closely with him on repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And you know, that's a situation where we had the votes we needed in the House. We were six votes short in the Senate, and we had a president working for and ready to sign that bill to repeal that piece of legislation. And the community, the LGBT community, they, they focused all of their anger on him. And you know, and, and there were people chaining themselves to the White House fence and disrupting events that he was speaking at. And he would say to us privately, you know, the, the logjam here, right, the the hurdle that we have to overcome is these six senators, not me. But somehow, you know, he represented the leadership and the hope of being able to get the job done. He was the one that everybody was counting on to go to those senators and convince them to vote the right way. I knew that he had to the, the ability to do that with some and not others. And I, I knew and I felt like the, the focus of the anger in the community needed to be at those senators, not at him, but he never lost his cool. And he never, he never reflected that anger back to us. He understood that it was an emotional and sometimes irrational, reaction that people were having. He understood what needed to be done and he just kept his head down and kept doing it. And it to, to be able to do that, to have that discipline, to be able to very clearly see what needs to be done and not let the sort of crosswinds of emotion get you off track is probably one of the reasons he's gotten as much done as he has. And not all of it has been popular and not all of it, as we're sitting here in this moment, is seeming as historic and important as it is, but it will.
0: Mm. And I think that's a great lesson for for everyone out there. Speaking of lessons, you have a, a bunch of you know incredibly uh, powerful tools and lessons that are in the book, and, and they come in the form of these stories. One of the one of the lessons is that you need to empathize with your enemies instead of shaming them. And I wonder if you can expand on that.
2: So one of the things that I've real that that I've always tried to do. If I come up against someone who disagrees with me and and this can be someone with whom I have a minor disagreement at work, or you know a religious leader who is representing two thousand years of you know the tenets of his faith uh, in opposing you know the rights of gay people, right? Um, I've found that, you know, again, if you can sort of put the emotion aside and have a very clear headed Thought process about who and what it is that you're up against. The most important thing for me that that, that I've I've tried to do at the beginning of, of that encounter is to put myself in that person's shoes and really understand what is at the heart of their resistance to what I want. You know, what is going on inside of them. So for some people, resisting my you know lobbying efforts to advance a gay rights agenda for instance for some people what's at the heart of their resistance you know a conservative congressman or a religious leader might be their upbringing might be a, a, you know the, the 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 clinging to a faith tradition that has guided their life right and in 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 them they may not see that there's any malice there. You know, they, they, they may not see it as being bigoted or intolerant. They they they're, they're sort of adhering to what they know. Now, for someone else, what may be at the heart of their resistance is fear—fear fear about who they worry that they are, or you know, the, the, their own sexual orientation, or where they might be on the or the spectrum of sexual orientation, or. Fear of change or fear of trying to keep their own family together and and their marriage together and what, you know, expanding marriage rights might mean. And, you know, so those are two very different sentiments and two very different things that are going inside of people that are externally offering up the same resistance to me. Right. But how I would approach those two people and how I would engage those two people in trying to change their minds would be very different. And, and I think that what we do a lot is we approach that situation, you know, two different people with the same resistance to us. And what we bring to the argument is what's going on inside of ourselves, rather what's going on inside of you. Right. So if your resistance to me or your intolerance towards me brings up anger and, and disappointment and rage and, and, and that's sort of what I lead with, and, and everything that I put out there in my conversation with you is based on what's going on inside of me rather than framed in a way to speak to what's going inside of you, I'm not going to be particularly successful in moving you mm.
0: Do you have an example of, of you know uh, a, a case where this this really came in handy?
2: Well I mean you know one of the things I talk about in the book is in, in lobbying to repeal don't ask don't tell. I would talk with some members of Congress who would say to me, I'm really somewhat indifferent or or not that interested in the issue. You know, I'm really I'm, I'm sort of neutral or, or indifferent to whether or not, you know, don't ask, don't tell is repealed and gay people are able to serve in the military.
0: And when they say that, do they do they mean that from a personal standpoint or do they mean that from a you know, a district standpoint, a, a voter standpoint?
2: Well, see, that's a good question. So oftentimes then where they would go in that, if I let them talk it out, is they would say, really, the only thing I'm interested in is being in line with my constituents, in doing what my constituents want me to do, in voting the way my constituents would want me to vote, that was sort of the beginning and the end of it. That was what they would offer up as their response to my lobbying efforts to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Regardless of what you feel, you know how you feel about gay people serving in the military, right? If you're me, and your my job is to advocate that gay people be able to serve in the military. You can imagine that you know this is the like the like the weighty civil rights like you know, issue that's being discussed on Capitol Hill that's defining a whole year of the Obama legislative effort. It's very important, whichever side you come down on it. And as an elected official and a member of Congress, you'd think that you would have a point of view about whether gays and lesbians should be able to serve in the United States military or not. And so. To not have that, you know, to not have that be a response, as you can imagine, it made me angry. It made me angry that that's the those are the sorts of responses I would get from a member of Congress. I could have responded angrily. I could have said, "You've got to be kidding me!" Like you're, you know, you're a member of Congress representing you know, six hundred thousand people, serving them in Washington D.C. You should have a point of view about this. It's like I almost would have more appreciated if they did. You know, if they said no, I don't like gay people and I don't think they should serve in the military. Like at least then I would have known what was at the heart of their resistance, right? But to hear them say all I care about is what my constituents th- think meant that if I wanted to be successful, what I needed to do is put away how, put aside whatever views I had about how a member of Congress should think about this issue and basically give them what they needed to get to yes. So my job then became to go back to their districts to poll or to to lobby or to you know to some way come back and demonstrate to them that their district would either be okay with or not have a problem with or in some cases be rather supportive of them voting to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell.
0: Right, and I, I think listeners out there can can probably think of situations in their everyday life where they can. Uh, you know, empathize. God, I hate that word. Uh, empathize with uh, you know with with the people that they're working with, um, much like what you just said, but may, you know, less on a on a political basis and more just per, perhaps on a personal basis or or on a you know in a in a corporate environment or whatnot. One of the other lessons in the book that you talk about is to find allies wherever you can, and I'm wondering if you can expand on that. And I'm also wondering if you can maybe. Touch on what do you do if you're if you're truly alone in in the fight? Uh, you know, I I know you probably had a big team with you, and, and obviously you had allies on your side, like you know, like uh, Miss Shepard and 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 the President of the United States. But what do you do if you are in fact truly alone in the fight?
2: Well, I think that you know, to your first point, it it, it feels to me, and and I think this has a lot to do with the fact that everybody has a platform and and, and we're bombarded with information, you know, every second of every day in ways that we didn't used to be. And so for a variety of reasons, whether it's, you know, I don't care if it's in in your apartment building or in your workspace, you know, or in in a lot of other settings where you find yourself in the company of people, you know, not necessarily by design or by choice. uh, we, We tend to, define our relationships with people based on the things that make us different and unique rather than the things that make that that we have in common i see that at you know at work all the time and so i think one of the most important things to do is to try and redefine relationships with people around you based on what you have in common rather than your differences and to, and, and in some cases that's easier said than done. And in some cases, you know, if you thought of a hundred things, you would think of 99 things that you don't have in common and one thing that you do. But
0: I feel like to, this is an exercise that the, the Republicans and Democrats need to be going through
2: unquestionably. Yeah. <laughs> or, or even, you know, yeah. I mean, with one another and within their own ranks, exactly. yeah. but it's true. And, and, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, 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 Easier said than done, but to be able—I I did this with a guy that I worked with for a while. We only had one thing in common, and so I always tried to find a way to come back to the one thing that we had in common and to weave it into any conversation that we had, and to kind of try to build on that. And and what it did was, at least in our working relationship, it sort of gave us some common ground to stand on in whatever encounter we were having at work. But I think it also, it won me a degree of respect from him because, you know, I, I, in order to, to to always try and weave what we had in common back into the conversation, it meant I always had to be sort of asking him questions and being solicitous of him about this thing that we had in common. Um, so it, it, it also, it, 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 it won me a level of respect from him that I didn't previously have because, I knew that it didn't go unnoticed, that I did it. So it, it it had sort of two purposes, both of which really strengthened our relationship, strengthened our work relationship, but, you know, if I'm being honest, got him to come around to my way of thinking more than he probably would have otherwise. So, um, you know, it, it sounds like a simple thing, and a lot of things in the book, whether it's about being a better listener or, um, you know, thinking differently about, um you know, people who you, you think you couldn't possibly find anything in common with, they're also, you know, they're profoundly important. And if you're intentional about them, they can have, uh, I think, a great deal of effect on your personal and your professional life. Um, and, and I think that then sort of gets to your next question about going it alone. Uh, it, it's It's very difficult to go at anything alone. And I think whether it's, advancing a point of view at work or you know sort of launching a crusade for social change i think probably the first and most important thing that anybody would do i would recommend would do who is sort of going at something alone is to think long and hard about whether there are more people to bring into that fight with you and maybe that you're 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 not thinking correctly or you're not thinking expansively enough about how it is that other people might come into that fight with you. I mean, we found that, as you said, like as an LGBT organization, we took a lot of fights on, you know, on our own. Now you're right; there were an awful lot of people in the LGBT movement in the LGBT space. But I'll tell you right now, we never got anywhere until we reframed our fight as a broader progressive civil and human rights struggle. And as we tried to figure out, you know, how is it that we could bring the Anti-Defamation League and the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights into this fight? You know, in in the fight for marriage equality, we really started to make progress when we thought, how do we bring religious leaders into into this fight? But also, like, how do we bring corporate leaders into this fight? You know, when's the last time you had sort of civil rights leaders, religious leaders, corporate leaders professional athletes, all sorts of different people taking on something that, you know, sort of at first glance, people didn't really see the kind of common ground around. But we were very creative about how this fight impacted all these different constituencies and about how we would compel them to, to, to come along and, and work with us. So, you know, in the fight for marriage equality in New York City, one of the principal spokespeople, Advancing marriage equality was uh, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, who you know was a, a, a it was sort of a interesting corporate entity to come into a civil rights struggle at the time. But said, having marriage equality in the state of New York would really fundamentally change the workplace at Goldman Sachs in a way that would make it a better work experience for everybody, make us be able to run the business in a better way, and um, you know, and and it has real implications for us here. And here's why. So. You know, I, I think – that that sort of expansive thinking and creative thinking about how do I make this fight relevant to somebody else is really important before you step into something on your own.
0: No, oh, I love that. I, I think that's so powerful. Um, you know, we're, we're fighting for we're fighting for social change. We're 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 trying to make big shifts in the world. But even you know on a on a smaller scale, uh, if you're trying to change something, to work inevitably you're going to fail. Something's going to happen, and, and things aren't going to work out. How do you channel your anger? In that case, when perhaps it, I don't want to say it doesn't go anywhere and nothing happens, but what happens if you just don't get to where you need to be getting to? Where, where does that anger go and how do you deal with that?
2: Well, so I think the first thing you've got to do, and, and I, th- this becomes sort of a repetitive throughout the book, is you've got to take a beat and you've got to put that anger aside for a minute and you've got to ask yourself some important questions. You know, what just happened here? What, what did I just fail at? To what degree is is anger a justified reaction to this? To what degree is it my fault? You know, did I fail? Or to what degree was I wronged? You know, I didn't do anything wrong here, but somebody else wronged me. So putting the anger aside so you can do a really clear-headed audit of what just happened to me. And then based on that, really asking yourself, you know, sort of the three choices, right? Do I fight on? Do I compromise? or do i completely concede and walk off the field you know which of those things in a clear-headed with emotion aside sort of thought process do i need to land on here and when you when you've done that in a very clear-headed way without the anger then you can bring the anger back into it so if you think you know i just asked my boss for three things and i got one and i am really angry that i only got one well you know, if you put the anger aside and you kind of are able to look at things, you know, through your boss's shoes and you realize, wow, he thinks he just did a great thing by giving me one. He thinks I ought to be a lot more grateful for the one instead of being disappointed for not getting the other two. So, you know, what's, what's the, what's the sort of state of play and the dynamic between you and the person who, you know, just wronged you or disappointed you or, or, um, you know, or or caused you to feel like you failed. And then, when you figure out, well, I'm going to go back to my desk, I'm going to do the best job I can, I'm going to devise a strategy to go back and try to get the other two things that I wanted, once you've sort of formulated that strategy, to what degree is it appropriate to express anger or, or, or an emotion? And It may be in the fight for civil rights, it's very important to, to reintroduce that anger and to say, we're mad as hell that we didn't get as much as we wanted and don't think that isn't going to spur and energize our fight to come back and get more in the workplace, you may have to say to yourself, you know, I've got to table that anger and I've got to sort of simply lead with whatever it is that I've got to put out there to try to demonstrate to this person that I ought to get these other two things that I wanted. And so to be able, you know, to, to, I find particularly with young people, sometimes you know, I work with a lot of young people who feel they they want me to feel the anger of their disappointment and I think to myself you know this is really misplaced because we just have a different point of view about what I think versus what you think you should be getting here you know but but and that's a lot of the book is about being intentional about putting that anger aside or whatever emotion you're feeling and thinking strategically and in a clear-headed way about what it is that you then need to do to move forward.
0: And and what do you do if if you know your your day consists of of fighting and battling and and scratching and clawing and and expressing anger all day like like you know like you were going through when you were fighting to to repeal don't ask don't tell. What do you do at the end of the day when you need to go home to the person you love and and y- you have to shed that that anger i can imagine it can be very difficult and and something that kind of hangs over you like a like a cloud
2: well i think for anybody going into that kind of work i've always said that the most important thing that you do before you go into that kind of a fight is make sure that you go into it in the right way and you go into it from as i did really from a place of what i call a balanced life so you understand the deep and significant importance of the work but you also understand that you take that work on and you take that fight on in conjunction with a family and friends and a community and a life outside of that work and you know if and when you fail at that work and you fail to a degree that somebody comes along and says you know you're not the person to do that work anymore or as in the case with a lot of the marriage pioneers know the work is done it is really important that when you step away from that work you haven't lost sight of that balanced life and the and the importance that all these other parts of your life place on you because there are people that go into this kind of work and it it it, it defines them you know it, it swallows them up and it's all they do it's what they live and it's what they breathe and so then failure it, it it comes not just to define your work and your activism and and your mission it then comes to define your the whole of your life you know but if if you go into that sort of work understanding the work's appropriate place in your life and the other forces in your life that are just as important, then you know the victories are incredible but the failures are contextualized
0: absolutely. Absolutely, you know, one of the things I, I I was itching to ask you is if you could give a a rating, let's say out of ten, of of how the world is with anger these days. How are we, how are we doing with anger? Uh, what level of anger is there? And and um, are we getting better? Are we getting worse? Is 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 it is it as bad as it seems out there right now? I know there was a, a recent study that came out. Measuring the sort of level of anger in the United States, and I'm wondering if you had a chance to see that and if if that's something that you can comment on.
2: I, I think that particularly in this election cycle, the le- the level of anger in this country is high. I think it is not as it has been at other points in history uh, when you know around great sort of strife in this country. Uh, you know whether it was around the Vietnam War or the civil rights struggle or you know many other points in history when anger was not only historically high but justified. I feel like right now we have a great deal of anger in this country but not in a way that is that, that justifies the degree of anger that we have and I think that the sad part that that is unique to this moment in history is that, this sort of onslaught of everybody being able to enter into the public square and have a platform and say whatever they want and being bombarded by that information all the time. And then having candidates running for office. And I say this, you know, on both sides of the aisle about both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders stepping up, recognizing that anger, and simply reflecting it back in a way that exacerbates and fuels the anger to sort of no productive end. Mm. And I think that if Hillary Clinton wins this election, regardless of what you think about any of these people, and and, and I, I say this about Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders because I don't think it's a, it's, it's not a partisan thing, it's just a reflection of the two of them. I think if Hillary Clinton wins, it's because she will have also under, you know, sort of recognized and understood that angry sentiment, but decided to, play the long game, and offer people a more thoughtful, measured path forward, one that doesn't always kind of feel good in the moment or during the speech, but in the long run is probably the direction that we need to go in.
0: Right. You know, before we go, we need to start wrapping things up. I, I wanted to ask you some sort of rapid-fire questions, and, and they're meant to be a little bit fun. We, you know, it's been a, quite a heavy conversation, um, but uh, nothing too scary here. I'm wondering if I can throw some of your way. Yeah. Uh, who is the most influential person of all time?
2: Wow. Uh, that is a big question. <laughs> I think that uh, maybe the most I, – I think one of the most influential people, at least in, in our time and in our country, is probably Franklin Roosevelt.
0: Great. And who would be the bravest?
2: Uh, the bravest person – of all time. Well, all time is a hard one. Um <laughs> or how
0: about in, in in our in our lifetime?
2: I think in my lifetime, you know, probably the bravest people in my lifetime that impacted my life, you know, were people like um, Peter Staley and the members of Act Up who at the time felt that they were facing certain death, but did whatever they needed to do, um, either by advocacy or civil disobedience to try to make sure that, um, you know, people coming behind them didn't face the same fate that they felt that they were likely to face.
0: Mm. And, and what is the most underrated trait for modern day success?
2: Being a good listener.
0: Great. And something everyone should experience.
2: Um, I would say owning a dog.
0: Cool. Um, if you were to take one book on a desert island, what would it be?
2: Well, I say my favorite book in the great American novel is The Grapes of Wrath.
0: Cool. And uh, one movie you would take on a desert island?
2: Inside Lewin Davis.
0: It's a great movie. Um, The single biggest lesson that you've learned uh, in your life?
2: We're not here for a long time. We're here for a good time.
0: (laughs) Um, Finally, what do you want your lasting legacy to be?
2: Uh, I would like for my lasting legacy to be that I worked and advocated to help people who were marginalized and disenfranchised to be able to experience the same American dream that all people have the opportunity to.
0: Mm, I love that. Um, you know, if, if anybody wanted to reach out to you, say hi, get, get, get to know more about you. What's the best way that they can do that?
2: So I have a um, Joe com is my faith is my web page. Uh, My site, I have um, a Facebook page, Joe Salmoni's, which is my author's page, which is about the book, and they can reach out to me on either of those. Awesome. And then I have a a personal Facebook page, too, but um, the the book, the author's page, is the one where I, I check the emails most often. And are you on Twitter? Yes, I'm on Twitter, Jay Salmanes at Jay Salmanes. S-O-L-M-O-N-E-S-E.
0: Perfect. Uh, so, guys and gals, you got to get out there and get Joe's book. It's called The Gift of Anger: Use Passion to Build, Not Destroy. It's available wherever books are sold. Um, go out there and get it. As you can hear, it's an incredibly powerful book and something that I think everyone should read because it's all something. It's it's it, it has so many tips and and tools and 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 incredible stories that um, can impact us all. Um, if you want to learn more about Mad Talks, you can go to MadTalks.com for more podcasts blog posts there's lots of amazing new articles that are up there recently and information on all of our events Uh, of course please subscribe to us on itunes and stitcher so you never miss an episode and leave us a rating on itunes or stitcher it helps to man it forward and it, it really helps to get the podcast into as many ears as possible thank you so much for listening to the man talks podcast catch us next week for another inspiring conversation